0: Berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
1: The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my
2: top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're gonna do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm gonna be honest,
1: I don't understand that. (laughs) As a man, I just I don't get it.
2: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. So happy to have you. Look, I'm going to keep this one short because um, it's around that time at night where kids are so loud, it doesn't matter where I am in the house, we will still hear them. Like, what is it about their volume control that is just non-existent. I don't, I don't know how to say it. So anyways, before we start hearing screaming, I'm excited to bring you our guest this week. We're talking to Dr. Jason Fung, and I thought it'd be a great time to bring this episode because as we talk about things like health and what to eat and all of that, it's perfect timing right around the holidays where I know all of you are going to be just eating so healthy and really focused on that diet. So Dr. Fung is a best-selling author and celebrated nephrologist. In case you don't know what a nephrologist is, they study kidneys. His newest book is called The Cancer Code, a revolutionary new understanding of a medical mystery. And his previous book is called The Obesity Code, where he talks about what drives obesity, he talks about intermittent fasting, foods to eat, etc. And in this episode, we really combine the two. We talk about The Obesity Code, which, by the way, has over 13,000 reviews on Amazon, which is just madness. Uh, It's definitely a bestseller. But he was one of the first to really stick up for this idea of intermittent fasting. We go into that in detail. And then we spin into how he's now one of the first to really talk about our new understanding of cancer, how it works, what it is, and potentially how to treat it. So briefly, Dr. Fung is a Canadian nephrologist. He's a world-leading expert on intermittent fasting and low-carb, especially for treating people with type 2 diabetes. He's written three best-selling health books, and he co-founded the Intensive Dietary Management Program. He graduated from the University of Toronto and completed his residency at the University of California, Los Angeles. That's it. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast if you like what you hear, ad-free episodes, access to our guests. You could have asked Dr. Fung anything you want. And with that, we will catch you right around the holidays. Hope you are doing well. Hope you're staying safe. Enjoy whatever 2020 has to bring for these last couple weeks. And here it is. We bring you Dr. Fung, specifically on his newest book, The Cancer Code, A Revolutionary New Understanding of a Medical Mystery. Enjoy. Dr. Fung, first, I want to say thanks so much for being on Smart People Podcast.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. Great to be here.
1: So look, we, we want to discuss your newest book, The Cancer Code, and how it's really a revolutionary look at cancer, something that it touches almost every single person in one way or another throughout the world. And I just want to start, you know, the listeners know with a little hook to give them a taste of what we're talking about. I want to ask you this question. What do you think is the biggest misconception most people have about cancer today?
0: I think the biggest misconception is this idea that we've sort of propagated over the last 40, 50 years that it's almost purely this genetic problem that is you know, you have these mutations in genes and therefore you develop cancer. And the implication is that, well, you can't really control your genes. I can't control my genes. And therefore it's just a sort of random throw of the dice who gets cancer. But that's not really true. Uh, We actually know a lot about what causes cancer. We have a whole uh, list of things which cause cancer. They're called carcinogens. And uh, we have um, a lot of control over this, um, you know, this disease, um, which I don't think people quite recognize uh, how important the environment is and our lifestyle is to the development of these cancers.
1: Yeah, I mean, and from my perspective, the good news is because of work like yours and similar, wouldn't you say that at least we're moving in the right direction of recognizing the environmental impact on not just cancer, but our health overall?
0: Oh, yeah, I think so. And what's become much more clear over the last little bit, so we've you know, uh, defined these things that cause cancer, so we've tried to avoid them, but there's a whole group of cancers which we didn't used to know what was the big contributor. Now we do. They're actually listed by the World Health Organization as obesity-related uh, cancers, so things like breast cancer and colorectal cancer, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer. So all of those things which uh, can cause cancer Uh, now once you know sort of what contributes to it, then you can, you know, put some effort into mitigating these risk factors. That is, if you're overweight, you can try and lose weight. If you have type two diabetes, you can try and reverse your type two diabetes, and that will impact your future risk of cancer. Because obviously if you don't have these conditions, you're going to be at lower risk.
1: That's a great point. One thing I want to touch on here as we think about the environment and many listening, I think given how well-read and researched a lot of listeners are, understand this link between environment and health, Um, you know, genetics, epigenetics, things like that. But in the same token, it becomes really scary because now the phrase goes, everything causes cancer. How do you react when you hear a statement like that?
0: (laughs) It's actually true. Everything does cause cancer. Oh, great. That's (laughs) one of the things that is... Uh, one of these realizations that has only come up within the last, say, 10 years. It's been a huge uh, change in the way people look at this disease because this disease was thought to be some kind of random genetic uh, event. Turns out that the seed of cancer is actually in every one of our cells. And um, not just ourselves, but like in every multicelled animal uh, has the ability to get cancer. So this thing that this disease of cancer is actually so deeply embedded in the way that life on Earth exists that you actually can't get rid of that seed. So everything can cause cancer. The, the, the point is that you can influence that risk with the choices that you make. And there's no clearer uh, evidence of this than sort of looking at traditional societies following a traditional lifestyle. So if you look at, say, for Inuit, for example, in the far north, when they were eating their traditional diet, they had so little of these cancers that uh, universities would send expeditions to the Arctic Circle to look at why Uh, These native peoples uh, just were immune to cancer. turns out they weren't. When they started changing their lifestyle and following a Western lifestyle with a lot of refined grains and sugars and all this sort of stuff, they got cancer like everybody else. Same with the Africans. So uh, missionaries in the 50s to Africa, for example, noticed that Africans following their traditional lifestyle didn't get colorectal cancer. When they started to follow a Western lifestyle, they did. So they called cancer a disease of civilization, which is a slightly pejorative term. But the point is that you can do a lot. So the genetics of the sort of the Inuit in the far north or the native Africans, the genetics hadn't changed. It was the diet and the lifestyle that changed that led to the development of these um, sort of cancers. Now, not all cancers, but colorectal cancer and breast cancer, for example, a woman in Japan, for example, when, they, when she moves to San Francisco, her risk, in, in, within a couple of generations, her risk of breast cancer goes up by two or threefold. So again, not the genetics, it's the environment, it's the diet, it's the lifestyle. So understanding what it is about the diet and the lifestyle leads you to, uh, you know, it's very empowering because it leads you to the fact that you could actually potentially reduce somebody's risk by two to threefold if you can understand these factors.
1: This is really what I want to get into with you today. Things like what are those lifestyle changes we can make? What does the research show impacts it? Uh, all types of things there. And so that's where we're going to go. But zooming out for a little bit, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. I was doing some research. You have a really interesting background. You you cover a lot of topics and man, you've written some really popular and impactful books on the subjects of obesity and health in general. So could you just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into all this, and really this idea of helping us all live healthier, longer lives?
0: Yeah, so I uh, grew up in Toronto. I went to medical school in Toronto, and then I went to UCLA to do my fellowship in uh, kidney disease. So I'm a kidney disease specialist. And uh, then I came back to Toronto, and I practiced fairly conventionally for a number of years, so Uh, up until about 2012, 2013, something like that. And what sort of uh, got me very interested in the topic of weight loss is the fact that, you know, we've had this obesity epidemic, which led to a a type 2 diabetes epidemic, which is the biggest cause of kidney disease. So I was seeing all these people, and, uh, you know, they're developing kidney disease. They would need dialysis, and they had all these horrible complications. Um, and the problem was that by the time I saw them, you couldn't do a lot about it. You had to just sort of continue. And that mm. didn't sit too well with me because the thing about diabetic kidney disease is that, uh, you know, if, even if you look at the name itself, you recognize that it didn't have to be. That is, if the kidney disease is caused by type 2 diabetes, if you get rid of that type 2 diabetes, you won't get the kidney disease. So that's the key is to get rid of the type 2 diabetes. So how are you going to do that? And, you know, when I looked at it, you know, everybody, uh, all the doctors anyway, were saying, oh, type 2 diabetes is chronic and progressive. But at the same time, I knew that was basically a lie because everybody knew that if you lost weight, your type 2 diabetes would almost certainly either get better or go away. Like it wasn't even, you know, controversial. Like everybody knew that. We had study after study after study that said, hey, lose weight, you don't get your type 2 diabetes or it goes away. So, therefore, it wasn't chronic and progressive. It was a reversible disease. But nobody was treating it as if it was a reversible disease. People were treating it as if, oh, if you get type 2 diabetes, you're done. You know, get your will in order and go on. But it's like, this is reversible. Everything we know about this disease says it's reversible. And again, it's not it's not a genetic thing because all of this happened since 1977 or so. You know, the type 2 diabetes uh, epidemic came around since the 80s, so within a single generation. So you're talking about the same genes in America, but it's the lifestyle that's changed. So therefore, uh, you know, as you trace that sort of um, causality upstream, you get to, okay, you have kidney disease, which... Leads you to saying, okay, well, we need to get rid of the type 2 diabetes, which leads you to say, we need people to lose weight, because that's the root of all of the problems. And it wasn't turned out not to be just the root of the kidney disease, but it was the root of a whole lot of other things. Because again, if you have, uh, you know, obesity, which leads you to type 2 diabetes, Your risk of heart disease goes up. Your risk of stroke goes up. Your risk of cancer goes up. Your risk of blindness goes up. Your risk of amputation goes up. Your risk of infections goes up. Like everything, everything mattered because you had to lose weight. So when I looked at the weight loss literature from a scientific standpoint, it was striking how little uh, actual scientific thought went into the advice that we gave. And, um, you know, there was so much sort of misconception and innuendo and stuff in that field that it, it blew my mind sort of, um, for, so for example, when, when I started anyway, I was one of the first people that really talked about intermittent fasting and fasting in general. Um, and at the time that I was talking about it, 2012, 2013, people thought it was like the dumbest idea, right? Really? Everybody thought you'd do incredible harm to yourself by not eating for 16, 18 hours at a time, right? So I don't know if you remember, but people were talking about, oh, you have to eat 10 times a day, make sure you eat breakfast and eat lots of snacks and graze all day. And it's like, I remember thinking, okay, well, one, as a physician, I tell people to fast all the time. If you're going in for surgery, you have to fast. If you have uh, you know, a colonoscopy, you have to fast. If you have surgery, you have to fast. If you get sick, you have to fast. If you do fasting blood work, you have to fast. So I'm telling people left and right, day after day, that they have to fast. And yet somehow the, the standard advice is to not ever fast because it's so dangerous for you. Um, and it made no sense to me at all. So I looked back and I said, well, okay, why is it so harmful? It turns out it wasn't harmful at all. Like, uh, you know, our body is well-equipped to handle periods of not eating. And so that was one of the things that I talked about in the obesity code was how, you know, you really have to, you know, get around this whole idea, one, of calorie counting, which has not been successful, and two, you know, intermittent fasting might be a very viable strategy. But the whole thing about calories is similarly, like the, the lack of scientific rigor is just astounding. Uh, because you know we, I you know I had been giving advice like oh cut five hundred calories a day and you'll lose a pound a week. That was the advice. That was what I was taught in medical school. That's the sort of advice I gave. And yet at the same time, I knew that it didn't work at all. Like it didn't work for me. It didn't work for anybody I knew. And it turns out when you look at the scientific literature, this the actual um, success rate of this sort of advice is somewhere on the order of like. which means that it was like a 99.5% failure rate. And that totally jived with everybody's experience. Everybody knew if you count calories and just cut a few calories a day, that you didn't lose weight in the long term, you lost weight for six months, if you're very diligent, you know, and then you put it back on because you didn't really understand. And the whole thing is that the body doesn't actually work on calories. We have no calorie receptors. We don't know what calories are. So you could eat two foods of the same calories. So you could drink, say, a big gulp of soda, right? Sugary soda has like maybe 800 calories. Or you could eat a piece of grilled salmon and salad, for example, for the exact same 800 calories. And the hormonal effect on our body is completely and utterly different between those two foods. Now, our body, like hormones, are the instructions we give our body. So if you eat cookies and cakes and stuff, and you eat, uh, you know, 800 calories of that stuff, your insulin spikes way up. Insulin is a hormone that tells our body to store those calories as body fat, for example. If you eat things like eggs and salad and so on, those 800 calories, you don't get any insulin effect or very little, and your body tends to use those, those calories instead of storing them. So that's good. So therefore, it's not the number of calories. It's what our bodies do with those calories that's important. You can store them or you can burn them. But what you do with them depends on the hormones that these foods elicit. So therefore, it's it's very important the types of foods that you're eating. And it's not just the calories. So you had people saying things. And I remember there was a doctor, some cardiologist, who used to say, oh, you could eat ice cream for dinner if you wanted, as long as you count your calories. I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, honestly, it's stupid, like anything. And, you know, your grandmother would have said the same thing. Like, you yeah. can't eat cookies for dinner. You're going to get fat, right? Huh. So all it means is that different calorie foods, so let's, let's assume that you're eating the same calories, but different foods are going to have different effects. You drink, you eat cookies, you drink soda. Guess what? You don't get full. Like you eat that for dinner. You're not going to get full. You eat a piece of salmon and a big salad, you are going to get full. Well, that's going to make a big contribution to what happens to you in the long term because if you drink the cookies and eat the you know, eat the cookies, drink the soda and you don't get full, you're going to want to eat something later on as opposed to eating the salmon and the eggs and the salad and all that, you know, real food, that you're not going to be hungry later on, right? So that's a huge difference. Even hmm. though people say, well, you know, if you if you keep them exactly the same, you'll get exactly the same results. That may or may not be true. But the point is that if you eat certain foods, you're not going to get full. You're going to want to eat more. So all it comes down to is that the hormonal effects on our body of certain foods are completely different. And that's the instructions to our body as to what to do. And, you know, the bottom line is some foods are more fattening than other foods. Which, again, your grandmother would have said, duh. Like, did you really have to go to medical school to figure that out? (laughs) And it's like, right. okay, so cookies are more fattening than broccoli. Okay. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. And somehow let me, let me, people are saying that's unscientific. I'm like, oh let my me god.
1: Pause you there for a second, Dr. Funk, because this is fascinating. And and you know, I think we've heard this, right? All calories are not created equal. And and of course, that goes against everything that was said not that long ago. I think it's amazing how quickly we think this was common knowledge, but it wasn't. And I don't think I've heard it explained as clearly as you just did. So I want to ask you this. Um, let's say that we, you know, uh, eat the the healthy diet or we eat the the sugary diet. And what is it about, I'm assuming it's sugar and correct me if I'm wrong, right? The, the reason why it triggers insulin, which tells us to store it as fat, et cetera. Why is, like evolutionarily, what is it about sugar that the body reacts and says, we need to store this as opposed to if it gets a a, a bunch of protein or something like that?
0: Well, it's just the way that our body uh, reacts. So I think that when we get sugar, for example, sugar is different. It's a, it's a combination of glucose and fructose and the fructose goes to our liver to tell us, uh, it's it store, it, it gets sort of funneled as, um, liver fat, which is particularly dangerous. But I think that that's a time when the, the, that sugar is available. Our body wants to store it because for most of our history, it's good to store uh, energy because that way you have it. you have fat around when you need it. But at the same time, you have to have a signal that goes against that. Because remember, how much fat on our body is carried is very important in terms of survival. That is, if you are a fat antelope, like obese, like morbidly obese antelope, you are going to die. So that something's mm. going to kill you, and you can't run as fast. So the amount of body fat on our bodies is actually very tightly controlled. That is, it's not going to go too low. It's not going to go too high. So there are, there are actually hormonal systems for both ways. That is, certain things which tell us to gain weight and certain things which tell us to stop gaining weight. Okay, so leptin is the is, is on the other side to tell us really to stop gaining weight, and insulin is on one side. So it's this sort of balance between insulin and leptin, and as long as you're eating natural foods, we've evolved ways to detect that we're eating too much. So, for example, if you force feed somebody, so you can do a study, for example, where you force feed somebody a lot of calories, and they did this in the '60s. They used to force feed these. Uh, it's actually an interesting story. They, they, this this guy, Ethan Sims, in Vermont, he, he said, all right, let's see if I can make people gain weight. So he took these college students and they thought, oh, this is easy, right? It's easy to gain weight. So he fed them and they gained weight, but they couldn't keep it on. It's very interesting because uh, it was the same thing as they saw in the rats. So he gave up on the college students because he couldn't make them gain a lot of weight. And instead, he went to the prisoners in the Vermont prison <laughs> where they <laughs> would limit their activity and force feed them. And some people are eating like 10,000 calories a day. So they gain weight. But then after, after they stopped the study, what happened is that they, they, had, they, they completely lost their appetite. They stopped eating for a long time or ate very little. And then they went back to their normal weight. So you see that there's actually very powerful hormonal influences to limit us. When our fat cells get overexpanded, it secretes leptin, which tells us to stop eating. And this pushes us back Towards normal. So when you're eating natural foods, so foods that we've sort of grown up with evolutionarily, uh, natural, real foods, then um, we have this sort of nice balance. That is, if you eat, um, and, and people think you can eat it all the time, but you can't. Like if you go to a buffet and you eat and eat and eat, and then you feel like you're so full you're going to burst. And then somebody says, oh, you want another steak? You'd say, oh, well, I'm going to throw up. So <laughs> it's a very powerful influence for you to stop eating. The problem is that a lot of processed foods winds up circumventing these natural satiety mechanisms. So they sort of get, you know, trick us. That is, uh, you know, then you can't eat a steak, but could you eat uh, like a cookie? You probably could because there's no satiety signaling there. Could you drink some Coke? Yes, you could because there's no satiety signaling. You could, you could take another 300 calories as soda, but you couldn't take another 300 calories as a steak like, Mm -hmm. that's pretty clear, like, we've all been there. And that's because of these different hormonal responses. And that's uh, the thing that's really important is that you have to, you have, you know, that's why, you know, you really have to focus on the hormones that you're eliciting, not just the calories, because the, the language of our body is actually the hormone. So you have to say, okay, well, you know, is it, is it, is it stimulating a lot of insulin? So, so, so that's why we, that's why we develop these sort of mechanisms of insulin and insulin resistance and all this sort of stuff is because yeah. that's on the one side, it's, it's the gain weight side of things. Uh, there's a whole mm. other side that is stop, stop gaining weight, stop gaining weight, right? So, so, so it's a, it's a balance between the two. The problem is the foods that we eat now are very much more concentrated and, to, to, to increase that sort of fattening, uh, hormonal system. Uh, and we don't focus on the other side. So sometimes you have to just, you know, help that along. And, you know, the fasting intermittent fasting is a good way to do that.
1: Well, and I want to touch on intermittent fasting, but I'm really glad you touched on this piece about natural satiation and things like that, because like, I've got two young kids, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And of course we feed them, as, as well as we possibly can. I mean, I'm kind of not psychotic, but I'm pretty strict about food, just given my background. And I, I worked for and, and created an organization built around this, this whole thing and spent years of my life on it. And we notice these natural ups and downs with them. You know, one dinner, they might eat what seems like the equivalent of what I would eat. And then the next just absolutely not eat it. And what this is telling me, you know, and of course we let them go. I'm, I'm, kind of grown up thinking there's something natural happening here. But essentially I think what you're saying is look, their body just is still either processing the calories they had or it's regulating correctly given how quote unquote controlled their diet is. Yeah, And that's, that's odd. I mean, that's, it it makes sense. I just never knew it to that extent that when we're that age, we essentially listen to it because that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And and you lose that as you grow up because then you get into much more structure and you finish everything on your plate and all that. And the key is that you have to be eating natural food. So again, when you're talking about children, most of the time we're very good. We make sure that they eat, you know, natural foods, foods as close to what they are in nature as possible. Uh, As you grow up, of course, then you start you know, having the ability to go out and get fast food and junk food and stuff, stuff that's very, very highly processed. And mm. in a lot of cases designed to sort of circumvent those sort of natural satiety mechanisms because, of course, they want you to eat more. Um, but there's two things in terms of weight that's super important, of course. And one of them is the foods that you eat, which is very important. And, you know, a lot of debate about that and no problem, you know, scientific debate. I mean, if you're, even if you're wrong, as long as you're talking about it is really good because then at least you have a chance of getting to what what will be correct. But what hadn't been talked about at all is the frequency of how often you should really eat. And this is the fascinating part is that both obviously are very important because if you're eating good foods, that's great. But if you're eating good foods like all the time, like constantly, well, that's probably not so good. Because you're not supposed to be doing that. So, up until about 1980 or so, people are eating three meals a day, no snacks. And that's considered healthy. So, you know, my mother, if you came home after school and said, you know, I want something to eat, she'd say, no, you're going to ruin your dinner. And if you wanted a bedtime snack, she'd say, no, you should have ate more at dinner. There's nothing to eat until breakfast. And that was it. There was no debate, there was nothing. So, you had three meals in your day. If you wanted, if you were hungry while you should have ate more of the previous meal, you need to wait till the next time, and your body is okay with that because it has a way to store calories. That's what body fat is. It's a store of calories, right? So you store calories when you eat. You take those calories out of your storage system when you don't eat or when you fast. And that's why you don't die in your sleep every single night because you have (laughs) this ability to put it in and you have this ability to take it out. You're not going to die. Now you get to the 2000s where all of a sudden we're being told by all the nutritional authorities, Oh, make sure you're eating every two hours. You know, you should graze all day long. It's like, wait a second. We've never ever done this before to our population. We've always said breakfast, lunch, dinner, one, two, three meals a day is okay after that. You know, you don't, you're you not digesting the foods that you're eating. Now, all of a sudden, we're telling people they're eating five, six, seven times a day. And we're telling them that it's good. Like, you go to school you get your mid-morning snack. So you get breakfast. You get your mid-morning snack. You get lunch. You get an after-school snack. You get your dinner. And then if you play soccer, somebody thought it was important that they have a snack in between the halves of soccer. So yeah. now you're eating six times a day, and you think it's healthy. But the problem is, of course, that every time you eat, you when you eat, your insulin goes up. Your body wants to store those calories because that's what you're telling it to do. So if you're storing calories six times a day, you're going to store more than if you store it three times a day, right? It's just like if you go to the bank three times a day versus six times a day, it's important. So the frequency of your meals is very important. Just like, you know, if you make a $100, that's great. But if you make a $100 once a year versus once a week, it makes a huge difference. So if you're eating six times a day, it's going to be a lot harder to lose weight because you're keeping your body in that please store some calories mode. You're not giving your body the time to pull those calories back out. And, and it was crazy because people kept saying, oh, in order to lose weight, you have to eat, 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 eat all the time. And I was like looking at this. I was going, how exactly does that work? How do you lose weight if you're eating all the time? Because it's actually physiologically (laughs) impossible to lose weight as you're putting food in your mouth. Like You actually can't. The only time you can actually lose weight is when you don't put food in your mouth. When you put food in your mouth, your body is going to want to store calories. And you're going to stop burning calories. Right? The calories either are going in or they're coming out. So in addition to the foods that you're eating... What you need to focus on is how often you're eating. And if you want to lose weight, just increase the amount of time that your body is, is um, you know, in, in this sort of uh, burning mode, calorie burning mode. It's, it's, it's nothing more difficult than that. And, and, and I think that was sort of a real revelation for people um, because nobody sort of thought about it very much. So yeah. I think that that was, that was one of the things that uh, sort of came out of this whole thing was that people started to, to, to look at intermittent fasting and say, well, this sort of makes sense, Like maybe we should pay attention to it.
2: And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. As we kick off the new year, it's time to pay our respects to some of the things we won't be bringing into 2020. Things like, I'll just You know, the elephant in the room, COVID. Hopefully we're leaving that in 2020. Baby Yoda, okay, maybe not. Love you, Grogu. Everybody baking bread, everybody having their own sourdough posted on Instagram, let's leave that in 2020. And toilet paper and paper towels being sold out, please, let's leave that in 2020. And last but not least, my old wireless plan an insane monthly bill. I will definitely not miss that because I switched over to Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile can cut your bill down to 15 bucks a month. Seriously, it's the easiest decision you'll make all year. I mean, I look back and I just realize how silly it is that I've been paying 90 something dollars a month. Like, come on. And being on Mint Mobile has been fantastic. My coverage has been just as good, if not better. Imagine the savings you're gonna bank when you switch to Mint Mobile and pay just 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text plus crazy fast 4G LTE. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Kick off the year the right way and switch to Mint Mobile. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com smart. That's mintmobile.com slash smart. Cut your bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash smart. And now back to the episode.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the intermittent fasting is fascinating. It's something I've actually been doing accidentally for a while. And I'll tell you, and and I want to move into cancer here, but uh, our Maybe our first, I think, yes, our first ever guest was a guy named Dr. Walter Willett, who you, you may have heard of. Yeah. And uh I remember asking him, Dr. Willett, do I have to eat breakfast because I'm not hungry in the morning? And straight up, this is 10 years ago. He said, No. <laughs> <laughs> he just said no. Well, and and no one was saying this. Like this was not a thing. I mean, obviously he was and I'm sure, some nooks and crannies, but and I just said, okay. He's the smartest guy I know on this subject. He gave me permission, so ever since then, if I don't wake up hungry, I don't eat until I'm hungry, and that often meant I'd eat dinner around. I ate a late dinner, usually around seven or eight, but I go to bed late, um, and then I'd eat lunch around twelve or or one. Um, and not now, I know that doesn't mean the kind of eighteen hours and whatnot, but it was typically about twelve, and uh, it's just been a better process. And oh, yeah. tr- truthfully, you know, I have weighed the same I'm 37. I have weighed the exact same amount since I was 21. Now some of it has gone from muscle to to fat, I'm sure. But but the point is I don't pay attention a like a, a ton to eating every single meal correctly. I just don't eat a lot. Um and to your point, it's only been recently where people are like, no, this is the way to go. It's just it's odd how at the end it always seems to get back to like Do what makes sense. Listen to your body. You know those types of things.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because the thing about breakfast is that this whole idea that you must eat breakfast—I mean, it was one of these things that just got repeated. There's no actually good evidence that said it was true. In any case, right? So, um, you know, there, there's, you know, we do studies and so on to show, you know, to try and, you know, prove or disprove hypotheses. And the uh, thing is that some stuff just gets repeated so often that it gets assumed to be true when it's not. This is the eat six times a day. There was never any evidence that that was actually true. Somebody thought it was a good idea, kept repeating it. And as everybody kept repeating it, people thought, oh, it must be true because everybody says so. Um, And there's the same with you must eat breakfast. Well, you know, even the word itself tells it to you, right? It's the meal that breaks your fast. That's it. It's it's, you know, you can fast forever, however long you want. It doesn't mean, you know, you must eat at 7am or something like that, right? It's, right? it's whenever you break your fast, you break your fast, but you must be fasting in order to break it. Therefore, your, your day should consist of a period of feeding and a period of fasting and you can't feed all the time. That's the right. point. So the thing about breakfast is that it's it's one of these um, m- myths, and it got got perpetuated for uh, ages um, because the the whole that studies were sort of um, paid for by a lot of these cereal companies that right. showed that breakfast was the most important meal of the day, and 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 that's the only. Um, you know that's that that was really the only evidence that uh it was true uh, you know and, and and it's sort of sad because that's you know what comes out of it you have a whole population thinking that oh you're going to be so unhealthy unless the minute you wake up you put some muffin in your mouth right it's like there's nothing healthy about that so <laughs> you know why do you need to do that and it was clear from the scientific evidence ages ago that you didn't really need to do that. It was it was really just a uh, marketing ploy, sort of thing that, that that got a little bit out of hand for most people. Um, yeah. But you know, the the other thing is that if you look at um, uh, circadian rhythm studies, um, you can you can. See, you you can measure people and say, how hungry are you? And when you do this for large amounts of people, what you find is that the time of the day that people are the least hungry is 8am, right? So if you're not Uh hungry, then you don't need to eat. That's your body telling you that, hey, I got it covered. I'm pulling all these calories from my body fat. Uh, You don't need to eat if you don't want to. So why are you forcing yourself to eat when you're not hungry? Like, that's not a winning weight loss strategy.
2: Mm-hmm. It's crazy
0: to do that. So, you know, but somehow it got out there and, you know, the people who actually look at the evidence, like, like Walter Willett said, nah, there's nothing that says it's, it's true, but it had been repeated so much. And you, you know, in the last 10 years, it's probably, you've probably heard, you know, you must eat breakfast sort of like 150 times to the one time you've heard that, oh yeah, it makes a yeah. difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was freeing. And I mean, let me, let me just tell the listeners why I want to go down this and the food. Cause you know, it's like, well, wait, we started talking about cancer. Here's the thing. I I found this really interesting. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, one of your books, you've written a couple, but one of probably I would imagine your best selling book is the obesity code. And in doing the research, I just want to let people know that book has over 13,000, 13,000. Amazon reviews. And look, I'm not saying Amazon is like the end all be all, but let's be honest. It's the biggest bookstore in the world. Um, it's got four and a half plus stars. It's, and the reason it's so well read is because to your point, it was a little bit ahead of its time. This research, what you put out was ahead of its time. It's ahead of what we now almost consider, you know, most people have heard of intermittent fasting. And the reason this is important to me is because I imagine the same thing is and will be true about the cancer code, uh, which is, look, we're getting, uh, we're getting some insight into what in five, 10 years will be considered normal and and, and everybody knows it, but we don't at the moment. So with that said, I want to make this switch over to the cancer code cancer. We started off there and I want to start with some basics. Tell us what cancer is and how do we currently define it
0: yeah cancer uh it's a really really interesting disease because we actually don't know what it is so if you think about other diseases we know mostly what they are or what causes them that is COVID is caused by a virus and heart disease is caused by a blocked artery in the heart and you know um, Sickle cell disease is caused by a genetic mutation. But cancer is not any of these things. It's a completely different disease that comes from our own body. That is, if you develop breast cancer, that breast cancer developed from your own normal breast cell or colorectal cancer or whatever you have. So it developed from our own normal cell, yet somehow turned into something that now is threatening to kill you. Um, And why does it do that? That's the real question. So it's not any of these other things. It's not a bacteria. It's not a virus. It's not a blockage in an artery. Um, So we don't actually know what it is. And that's the real question and why it develops the way it develops. And so it's a real mystery. And yet it's one of the most common diseases in the world. It's like the number two cause of death in America and you know, it's uh, so common that if you look at autopsy studies, for example, if you look at men over 90, like 50% of them have evidence of prostate cancer. So it's not some rare thing, it's a very, very common thing. And we don't know what it is. And this is what the Cancer Code is really about. It's sort of the evolving paradigms of, of cancer, that is how, how we think about cancer and how it's evolved. So in a nutshell, it evolved sort of very, uh, you know, we, we looked at it as a, this, you know, cell that grew too much. So therefore, we developed all these treatments to try and kill cells, like surgery, which is cutting them out, and radiation, which is burning them, and chemotherapy, which is poisoning them. But it still doesn't answer the question of why these cells are growing too much. So then we said, okay, well, in the 60s and 70s went to this genetic paradigm. So we said, well, you know, we have uh, genes that control growth. So if you have a random mutation in a gene that controls growth, you can get excessive growth. And that's why they, they grow too much. So again, a new paradigm, and then this uh, sort of spawned new treatments, because these new um, Treatments were not trying to kill cells, they were trying to fix the genetic problem. So, the first couple of treatments were fantastic. It was really good. So, you know, certain drugs came along and they were able to change the course of you know those diseases, um, not by killing them, but changing the genes. So, we thought by the 2000s, oh, we're going to cure cancer because all we have to do is look for. Uh, these gene mutations, you know, maybe two or three or four gene mutations in liver cancer and two or three or four gene mutations in pancreatic cancer will develop some drugs and then we'll cure the whole disease. And that was in the 2000s. Then we had the Human Genome Project, which sequenced the genes, and and that was one of the things that we thought we could cure cancer with. Um, And then that went on to the Cancer Genome Atlas, which was uh, instead of sequencing one person, they sequenced like 33,000 uh, cancers. And the problem with the genetic uh, theory was that we weren't finding one or two or three mutations in cancer. Each cancer had maybe 100 mutations, which of course makes it very difficult to treat because you can't give 100 different drugs. But it was much worse than that. So if, if you know you had two people with cancer, colon cancer, for example, patient A would have 100 gene mutations, and patient B would have 100 completely different gene mutations than patient A. So it was crazy. You couldn't Mm. develop all these different things. So it wasn't just that these were mutated, it was that there's a huge number of mutations. You know, when they looked at it in 2018, and they looked, how many gene mutations have we found in cancer? The answer is somewhere around 6 million. So it's like you're not trying to develop one drug. To, to to be successful in this paradigm, you have to develop like six million drugs. Not wow. possible. So that's where cancer progress slowed right down. We just couldn't develop it. So that's what sort of led to the last, the most recent sort of um, you know, cancer paradigm, which again tries to it doesn't invalidate any of the previous paradigms, but tries to understand at a deeper level. What is causing these gene mutations? And the very surprising answer that we found was that this is an evolutionary process because only evolution, sort of Darwinian evolution, can actually control these number of genes. But what has been happening is that these uh, cells, so if it's in the colorectal cancer, these colon cells, were actually um, evolving, and that was what was controlling these gene mutations, towards a sort of more primitive uh, form, and likely in response to chronic injury. So as the as you injure cells, what happens is that the, the, the cell tries to survive, and as it survives, it becomes more and more primitive. That is much more like a single-celled organism. So when you compare sort of uh, single-celled organisms to cells in a multi-celled organism, what happens is that the single cell is very sort of selfish in that it, it only has one cell. It competes with other cells, tries to kill them. It tries to move around to get to better places. Whereas cells within a multicelled organism, say cells in your liver, they cooperate with each other. They try and help each other. They don't move around all over the place. And this is what the difference between a sort of liver cell and a liver cancer cell. The liver cancer cell now has become evolved under the stimulus of chronic injury and trying to survive into this sort of survival mode where it becomes more like a single cell organism. It'll, it'll grow. It'll grow wherever it wants, even if it kills you. It'll move around, so it'll metastasize to so wherever it wants, even if it kills you. Uh, It's become immortal, like it it no longer dies, the cell line no longer dies. So these are the same things. And and that's, you know, again, important because if you think that this is now an evolutionary disease, the cells are now evolving into a sort of invasive foreign species, then you can develop treatments based on this new evolutionary paradigm, which is to say, look, I'm not going to try and kill cells indiscriminately. That was the first paradigm. I'm not going to try and fix the genes because that's the second paradigm. I'm going to, one, either try and reduce the damage that's being done to reduce the sort of evolutionary pressure to to change, or I'm going to boost the systems that we have in our own body to uh, get rid of invasive species, which is the immune system. And that's led to this whole idea of immunotherapy, uh, which is, of course, a whole new way of treating cancer, and it's it's uh, you know why I'm optimistic that hopefully we'll start to get to the bottom of some of these um, things that will help us in the long term. So it's mm. it's it's an interesting, like a fascinating story of uh, the sort of recent developments in oncology from a very high level. That is, it's not going to change what you do on a day to day basis, but it's the way that you look at the cancer is. If you look at it from a different perspective, then you can understand it. Then you can try to develop treatments. And one of the implications of that is that if this is a new sort of invasive species, and you might say, well, that's ridiculous. It's not a foreign species. It's your own cell. It's like, well, you know, our own immune system identifies these cancer cells as foreign cells. Mm -hmm. So we have a natural immune system, which will try to destroy foreign cells and not attack our own cells it will intrinsically, without ever having seen it before, identify a cancer cell as a foreign cell. So I'm not saying that, you know, it's not me that's saying that they're foreign. It's our our immune system that targets them in that way. So, um, you know, but what's important is if you have an invasive species, then there are certain things that are going to encourage its growth. So one of the things that will encourage its growth is if you increase the amount of growth factors in your body, then you're going to increase those cells that grow, such as those cancer cells. And one of the most important um, growth factors in our body is the hormone insulin. So, when you eat insulin, you actually give your body very strong instructions to grow, grow, grow. And if you tip the balance from growth you know, to, to more growth, then you're going to facilitate the development of cancer. And that's probably how you get the link between obesity, which is a disease of too much insulin mm. and, um, and cancer.
1: And, and that's, I know that's at the core of the cancer code. And it's interesting because it stems from, I would imagine your background in kidneys, right? Um, and tell us, I guess, give us, we've all heard this term insulin. I think we have a little bit of an idea, right? Insulin is related to blood sugar and things like that. And sugar is bad and sugar causes cancer and all that. But walk us into the depths of it, right? Like, what is it about insulin that is necessary? How does sugar provide the breeding ground for cancer through that hormone? Really what's going on at a biological level there? Um, well, from a biological perspective, um, cancer,
0: uh, it can metabolize a lot of fuels, but glucose is one of the fuels um, that that it uses. Uh, so insulin is, um, it facilitates the sort of movement of glucose into the cell to be used for energy. So therefore, if, if you have a lot of insulin and a lot of glucose, well, that's going to make it a lot easier for the cancers to grow. Um, and that's one of the reasons that people sort of uh, look at this and say, uh, well, this is an easy way to sort of influence your your risk of cancer. So um, one of the things that's been discovered, so Dr. Lou Cantley is, uh, you know, one of these big researchers, um, and he was the one who discovered this entire pathway where insulin is sort of not just a nutrient sensor, that is, it tells us that food is available, but that very same molecule insulin is also a highly, highly potent growth factor so you know and he's he's he gave this fantastic he had this fantastic line on an interview he's like sugar scares me it's like okay well that should be scary considering he's one of the most foremost cancer researchers in the world you know won Mm -hmm. all kinds of awards and you know to be so flatly uh like that it's like well yeah because you're giving cancer the most um easily available fuel um at the same time you're you're stimulating insulin which going allow the cancer cells to use that fuel uh it's like a perfect you know uh, solution for the cancer it's like no wonder it's a perfect growth uh medium and i and i put it in the book as sort of a a seed and soil problem so that is um the seed of cancer actually exists in all of our cells So you can't do very much about it, but you can influence the growth not by just the seed, but also the soil in which it finds it in. So if you have a seed, like a carrot seed or something, you throw it in the Sahara Desert, it doesn't grow because the soil is no good. Well, it's the same in our bodies. If we are giving our body tons of sugar, tons of insulin, that's going to make a fertile soil for cancer to bloom. So therefore, what we need to do is figure out what's important and sort of cut those back. Sugar being one of the very important factors, uh, of course. I mean, one of the big differences between traditional diets and sort of uh, Western diets is the sort of uh, ubiquity of sugar uh, everywhere. In traditional diets, of course, sugar is just very... Like most people don't have added sugars because, it, you know, it's not available in traditional right. clients. So, you know, even before the 1800s, for example, you, you know, before all those sugar plantations and all that, it was a very, very hard to get very uh, real luxury items. So people weren't eating it a lot. But now, of course, it's cheap like anything. It makes your food taste good. It, you know, it's, it's just everywhere these days, even in savory foods, you find a lot of sugar as well.
1: Well, and and herein lies the rub, right? I mean, this has been something that I think has paralyzed me to some extent, and I, I know it's impacted a lot of people. One, I love sugar. I mean, I, I definitely have a sweet tooth. Uh, number two, I know how addicting it is. So the question becomes, first, is there a right way to consume sugar? Because, And correct me if I'm wrong, but don't we need some form of it, or is it just that we can break it out of natural foods, you know? I guess what I'm asking is how can I get sugar in a way that doesn't have as, you know, as much negative impact on my health?
0: Well, I think that this, um, is a big problem because, uh, the sugar itself, um, you know, whether you get it from fruit, for example, or whether you get it as high fructose corn syrup uh, is the same chemically. It's the same now. Their added sugar is much worse than the natural sugars that you get um, because when you have added sugars, there's no limit to how much you can put in. You can put in as much as you want, whereas an apple, for example, will only get to a certain level of sweetness. Now, we've changed it, of course, with bread certain types of apples that are very sweet and we've bred peaches that are much sweeter. But, you know, for the most part, there's a limit to how far far you can go. So the, the thing is that, you know, you don't need any carbohydrate. And this is, again, one of these big, big, uh, you know, myths of the last few years. Uh, you know, I don't know if they still say this, but when I was looking at it, there's tons of dietitians who would say you need to eat 130 grams of carbohydrate a day for your brain. It's yeah. like okay, well, so say, suppose I don't eat for 24 hours. And I've done this many times. Do I just get a seizure or something? It's like it's like you don't need 130 grams. Like your brain may may metabolize 130 grams of glucose a day. It does not mean you need to eat 130 grams because that would mean that if you didn't eat for a day, you'd just die. Like I didn't. I haven't died. <laughs> None of the thousands of patients who have fasted for more than 24 hours at a time, like the ones who were getting ready for surgery and the ones who are getting colonoscopy, none of them died. So how can you say that you need 130 grams of carbohydrate a day in order to survive? You don't, you need zero. There are certain nutrients that are essential, like Protein. If you don't eat enough protein, you will eventually die. There are essential fatty acids. If you don't eat a certain amount of fat, over time you will die. But you can get by with zero carbohydrates. It's not an essential because if you do not eat the glucose, your body will produce it. If you don't eat it for a long time, then you produce ketones, and ketones will feed the brain. And that's the basis of the ketogenic diet, for example. People who eat very low levels of carbohydrate, and they do this for years and years, and they're not dying on the streets out there. So clearly, this was a complete fabrication, a complete misinterpretation, but it got sort of repeated so often that people said, yeah, you need to eat 130 grams of carbohydrates a day. It's like, you need to eat zero carbohydrates a day. That is the necessary amount. I'm not saying that you have to eat zero, but you could eat zero and still survive. Our body can handle that. So. Uh, you know, no, you don't need it. And the the other problem, of course, is is the one of habituation. If you start eating very sweet foods, then you need to eat very sweet foods. I remember as a child, I remember thinking water tastes terrible because I was just drinking a lot of sodas and stuff at the time, which was probably <laughs> typical of 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 kids, right? And yeah. I was like, this water tastes horrible, right? And it's <laughs> like now, of course, I drink water all the time, and I, right. you know, same thing with my coffee, right? I used to do. In Canada, we have this double-double, which is two cream, two sugar. And I used to drink that all the time. Then, of course, uh, about 15 years ago, I wanted to cut it out. So I went to one sugar, then I went to half, then I went to zero. When you get to zero, the coffee tastes horrible. And now, yeah. of course, it tastes normal to me. And when I put sugar in, I go, whoa, this is way too sweet. This is like a dessert or something. I, I actually can't drink it. Somebody had brought me a, a, uh, a sugar, like, you know, coffee with cream and sugar. They brought it in, not knowing how I take it. And uh, so I drank it and I thought, oh, it's terrible. I actually couldn't even finish it. It's too sweet. I didn't like it. So, you know, people do have a sweet tooth. That It's natural. It's natural to want to eat sweet things. I mean, that's ingrained in all of us. But if you don't eat sweet things, then your taste buds will change. And when you eat a little bit of sweetness, you'll, try, you'll, you'll, you'll see that as very sweet. Um, so you can you can alter that so you don't need to be sort of like, oh, I must have this amount of sugar um, it's it's you can get by without it and then after like two, three weeks, you'll just get used to the the new sort of level
1: uh, of where you're at i I will confirm that to be true. I did for a couple of months a really strict it was an autoimmune protocol diet um, and man, it's brutal weaning off of sugar, but you do get to the point where pretty quickly, where your taste buds change, and it's bizarre. I think the hardest part, at least for me, of maintaining that was not personal, it was societal. It was societal pressures. It was Thanksgiving. it was you know Christmas, it was cookies, it was drinks, you know anyways. Um, I know our Times up here. And for those listening, I want to say, look, we've scratched the surface of two not only incredible books, but some really revolutionary concepts. Uh, as I mentioned, the obesity code, but then the follow up, which we're really here to talk about, which is the cancer code, a revolutionary new understanding of a medical mystery. So, Dr. Fung, one, I really appreciate you being on. Number two, um, you know, where can people go to learn more? Of course, I recommend the book, but I know you have a lot of content out there and really good content. Where can uh, people go find more and learn more? Yeah, so
0: you can go to my website, which is thefastingmethod.com. And there's a section with all the blogs that I've written. They go back actually like six years or seven years. So there's a ton of them. Um, The other place that's uh, good is you can follow me on Twitter and then also on YouTube. I'm starting to put out new videos. So there's a number of lectures there which were lectures that I gave to sort of medical specialists. So, but now I'm starting to put out uh, weekly uh, videos that are more sort of shorter and sort of aimed at everybody as opposed to sort of uh, relatively high level uh, medical lectures. So th- those are great to, you know, great to have a look at as well. And, um, you know, uh, you can also, uh, you know, follow me on instant Instagram and Twitter. This is at, that's... Uh, Dr. Dr. Jason
1: Fung. Awesome. And we will link to that as well as the website so people can learn. It's a hot topic. I think it's, uh, you know, it's always evolving. This is the best we know right now. And uh, I think it'll help a lot of people. So Dr. Fung, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your insight. All right. Thank you. Great to talk.
2: All right. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Jason Fung. Jason's book, The Cancer Code, A Revolutionary New Understanding of a Medical Mystery, can be found wherever books are sold. Now it's time for some quick housekeeping. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you're looking for ways to support the show, the easiest way is to head over to wherever you downloaded the podcast from and leave us a rating and review. And if you'd like to help us monetarily, you can always head over to Patreon at patreon.com smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to stay up to date on all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Stay tuned because we've got our year end in review episode coming up soon. And we'll see you all next episode.